machine. Come on, wake it up already, and let's get the story contest going. Time is stories, time is stories, and no one has as many stories as me. <laughs> yes, of course, Mr. Story Gnome. Uh, let me just explain to the listeners who didn't hear the last story on Patreon. <laughs> Human business. All right, but be quick about it. Uh, of course. Hello, listeners, and uh, sorry about the confusion. As you probably heard on the last episode of the podcast, Tim and I were sucked down into the stardust cloud that had suddenly appeared in the attic. We were held as prisoners by the story gnome and had to listen to a story of his version of the marble machine. The gnome had deactivated the marble machine with a cursed cucumber, but now we have made a deal. The gnome will let the marble machine tell stories again if we beat him in a storytelling contest. If not, listeners, I'm afraid the world from this day forth will be damned to listen to the dreadful stories of the nasty story gnome. So, um, Mr. Story Gnome, how will this go down? Dreadful stories? We shall see about that. How will it go down? It was your idea, wasn't it? I just know you won't be judging. You're too biased because you love that boring old marble machine. Oh my, listeners. The story gnome just walked over to our beloved marble machine and touched it. It seems to be working again, but it sounds different. It sounds different because it is still under my control. I only freed it for one story. I have brought my best story with me. May the gnomiest story win! The story gnome seems prepared, listeners. He just placed a huge old manuscript on the floor of the attic. Boy, that sure looks like a long story. Oh, uh, thanks, Tim. The marble machine just told Tim to tell me to tell the story gnome um, that an old story is not suitable for the story contest. Both should have equal time to prepare a story for the contest. <laughs> the marble machine suggests that half a second time to prepare should be good, and it asks if the story gnome is okay with that. Ha! Half a second? It's impossible! No one could come up with a new story in half a second. If it can do that, I'll leave this place forever. But if it can't, I will destroy your lying old, no-good, shriveled old marble machine! Right here on the spot. Half a second. Stupid marble machine. Go ahead then. Start and... Listeners, before the gnome finished his sentence, the marble machine dropped a marble. It is glowing silver and it seems to contain a brand new story. The marble machine must have taken it right out of the universe of ideas, just as it was born. Impossible! Well, let's see, shall we? I will eat it. And if it contains a story, I guess you... Yes, yes, yes. Eat it already. Being Immortal Written and narrated by Jacob Graff Recorded and edited by Tim Höfer James was immortal. He did not know this when he was born, nor did anyone bother to tell him when he was growing up as a child in the 15th century. To be fair, his parents are not to blame because they had no clue that their son was going to live forever. 
No one did. The good thing about being immortal and not knowing it is uh, that you will find out eventually. For James, this was right around when the Industrial Revolution kicked in, about 300 years after his birth. If you still look like you're in your mid-twenties by the time you're 300 and your family and friends are all dead, you start to suspect that something fishy must be going on. As an immortal, James aged differently. The first years of his life, he grew up like everyone else. But when his two older brothers and his younger sister had long become teenagers, James simply remained a ten-year-old. His parents, who were very, very religious even for the time that they lived in, loved their son. In the first years in which he didn't age, they thought he was just a, a very late bloomer. But when his siblings were heading well into their twenties, they asked a local priest for advice. The priest was a close friend of the family and, luckily for James, a very progressive thinker for his day and age. Instead of letting their son be trialed for witchcraft and having him burnt at the stake, the priest suggested to simply abandon little James in a nearby forest with a basket full of food and some water. James ignored the basket and tried to make his way back through the woods to find his parents. But they had left him so deep in the woods that he got terribly lost and tired and soon decided to just lie down and sleep. Falling leaves covered his body. Wind swept soil and dirt over him. But young James kept sleeping. He slept through the whole week, the whole month, and then all through the winter. Once a slight notion of coldness caused him to open his eyes. But he paid it no mind and just turned around and decided to sleep a little more. For seventy-some years he slept. The seasons came and went, leaving his body covered deep underground in one year, only to bring it back to the sunlight in the next. Finally, one spring, as nature once again decided to free him from his earthly bedding, James woke up. He yawned for an hour straight, gave himself a good stretch, and then realized, naked that he was, that he was becoming a man. For the next century, James looked like an adolescent boy of about 13 years. With his parents long dead, and his siblings too, he decided that the best thing to pass time was to walk the world and observe the life of other people. He lived as a homeless person for most of the time, and watched as other homeless people died of cold, diseases, or old age, all of which never seemed to concern him much. It took a while for him to realize that he didn't really need to eat or drink to survive. Even breathing wasn't vital for him. If he stopped doing it, he would feel a certain urge to fill his lungs with oxygen, but then that urge would just go away and leave him alone. He could hold his breath for days or even weeks if he wanted to. For decades he had done most things like eating, sleeping and breathing only to copy what other people did around him and what seemed to him to be normal human behavior. In his case, it was all just illusionary conditioning. He didn't need it. Sometimes he did feel hunger, but if he didn't eat, the feeling would pass, as emotions like anger or excitement did for most mortals. Thirst and tiredness would disappear in much the same way, and if James occasionally felt flu-like symptoms or physical pain, he appreciated them as a welcome change and, quite frankly, enjoyed them, for he never got sick to a point where a disease could really harm him. 
Most of the things that mortals could only do for a limited amount of time, James could do for as long as he pleased. If he wanted to, he could sleep for years on end. One of his greatest hobbies was walking. Once he walked back and forth across the Alps for 28 years without resting, sleeping, eating or drinking. During these decades of walking, he had started out looking like a man in his 30s, but when he got back from the trip, he looked like he was 25 again. James not only aged a lot slower, but his aging would occasionally set his gears in reverse and give him a nice little boost of rejuvenation. In the 18th century, James considered for the first time that perhaps he might never die. Between the 19th and 20th century, this speculation became a firm belief. But it took him until the beginning of the new millennium to finally jump over his shadow and tell someone else that he was most probably immortal. That brought a whole lot of other aspects to think about to the table. Like who to choose to tell such a thing? Whoever it was that he would reveal his secret to, he didn't want to come across as arrogant or superior. He really didn't feel that way, but he thought it might be the first impression someone would get when you tell them that you're the one human being that was granted everlasting life. James sat in a cafe and ordered a mug of hot chocolate and extra whipped cream. His fifth this morning. He scratched his head and looked at the people passing by. What if they locked him up in the loony bin? What if they worshipped him as a god? Maybe the person would just laugh at him and leave, or maybe he or she would become a fanatic stalker and never leave his side for the rest of his life. Well, the rest of their life, rather. Technically, even the worst of outcomes was nothing that he couldn't just sit through and wait. After all, he could deal with any problem by simply sleeping it away for a century or two. The big problem was that James had a very distinct idea about how his coming out should go down. He wanted a friend. Someone who respected him for who he was. If there was one thing he missed from back when he was simply regarded as a strange little kid that was perhaps cursed by a demon, it was his childhood friends. If he didn't find a friend soon, he would go mad. And going mad seemed to be quite a struggle given that it would literally mean never-ending madness. Sooner or later I'll go mad anyway, he muttered and sipped his hot chocolate. Sooner or later go mad anyway. Later nomad, soon ah, oh rider, I'll go nomad. Sooner or rider, sooner or writer. He looked at more people passing by. What might such a friendship look like, he wondered. What if the friendship would work out and then the person would get old and die? How long would he miss him? How long would it take to forget? What a selfish perspective, he thought and shook his head. He just had to take the risk, no matter the outcome. It was 2021 and James rather enjoyed the present. A lot one could do with a good friend in these modern times. A man that looked about 30 got up and paid. James had almost dared to talk to him, but now it was too late. Opportunity wasted, he mumbled and then repeated. Opportunity wasted. Oh, but you needy waste, Ted. One of the results of having too much time on his hands was that James started to create instant word games with whatever sentences he said to himself. 
by taking a similar melody of the words he spoke and making up new and mostly totally meaningless phrases. One more hot chocolate, please, he told the waitress, and to himself he muttered, One more hot chocolate. Want mo? Rod? Shock? Lid? More rod shock lid. Shock lid. Choke lid. Want more rod? Choke lid. Want more rod? Show it. Rephrasing words, huh? Too much time on your hands? The waitress suggested and put down another hot chocolate on his table. Right. James beamed and feeling an impulse of sudden connectedness, he blurted out, I'm immortal. Hi, I'm Margaret. The waitress smiled and took the empty mug from under his nose. You work here? He hadn't expected the whole immortal issue to be left so utterly uncommented. Well, it's only the seventh cup of hot chocolate I've served you today, and this traditional work dress of the cafe staff could just as well be my chosen way to dress today. So, it would be quite a bold conclusion to draw, but yes, Sherlock, I work here. My name is James, he said a bit confused. I saw you like to look at people, Margaret said and nodded to a guest that had just paid and was now leaving the cafe. Yes, um, did you hear what I said before? When? Just then, that I'm... Immortal? Yeah, yeah, I heard. You expected more of a reaction, huh? I did, um, sort of. Congratulations. Um, thanks? New to the game? The game? Oh boy. Margaret looked at her watch. I'll tell you what, my shift ends at six. I'll go for a walk with you. What do you say? Oh, that would be lovely. James had never felt this nervous in all his previous years of immortality. By the time Margaret's shift ended, he had downed another seven hot chocolates with extra whipped cream. Ready? Margaret asked. She was now wearing a grey tank top and a pair of black leggings and dark green Doc Martens. James suppressed a burp and nodded. They walked in silence all the way to the other side of the city centre. After almost two hours of conversationless strolling, they reached the city park. Now that, you see, would have been quite bizarre to most mortals. James's eyes widened. What? What did you say? I said that not talking for two hours after having just met is not something that mortals would do. We are used to these long moments of silence. They feel natural to us because we have a different concept of time. It's in our genes to take things slower. We don't have the pressure of time weighing on our shoulders. It's one of the main reasons why we don't get along with mortals too well. At least not past a superficial level. We're too different. We, you mean you are... Uh, immortal? Yes, of course. You aren't the fastest, are you? Don't worry about it. To observe what goes around us, one needs time. Luckily, time is on our side and we have an infinite supply of it. Do you remember when you were born? I... James hadn't thought about his birth date for centuries. I don't remember the day or the month. Uh, only that it was cold. The year was... 1437. Winter of 1437. A real baby. Aww, Margaret said and pinched his cheeks. Good that you remember. Don't ever forget your birth year. You hear me? 
It's a nice thing to hold on to. It stays the same as everything else just passes and withers away. When was yours? Margaret shrugged her shoulders. I wish I knew, but no one ever told me to remember it. All I know is that I was waiting tables for a pharaoh when I was a young girl. That's my earliest memory. Of course, there weren't any cafes and it wasn't like real waiting tables back then. And I was more of a slave than a waitress. <laughs> but nostalgia still has me waiting tables to this day. Guess it reminds me of the past. Waiting tables reminds you of being a slave? In a good way, yes. Funny, huh? I got thrown into the snake pit a couple of times for dropping a pitcher of wine. Or something like wine, at least. I forgot what it was and how it tasted, and there were too many centuries of good wine that followed. Hard to tell now. But I do remember the snakes. Vicious little demons. Um, did it hurt? At first I thought it did, but then I realized I was just pretending to feel what people were expecting me to feel. The snake pit to mortals meant gruesome suffering and a slow, horrible death. When I realized that didn't apply to me, I figured out all the other mortal concepts and constructs of the world didn't either. You know, like uh, pain being something bad, death being something inevitable. After a few decades, I started to really enjoy pain as a welcome change of perspective. Exactly. Injuries and diseases too, they make me feel... Alive. alive. Yes, for mortals it's always so dramatic. Every suffering is put in direct perspective with the unavoidable end of existence. I think that's the only reason why they actually suffer. Does it hurt them differently than us? Honestly, I think their feelings are the same as ours. We just view things from a whole different angle, given that we aren't playing the whole decrepitude, evanescence and all things must come to an end game. But that's just my opinion. So do we really never die? We might, but dying would sort of contradict the whole immortality concept, wouldn't it? I think death's irrelevant to us, because at least for as long as I've been around, I've never seen it happen to any one of us. Many immortals live through tremendous catastrophes. They always come out just fine. If we're badly injured, we just lie down and sleep for a few weeks, months or years. Also, we get stronger with time. We do? Sure. If we don't sleep, we don't heal. But even that doesn't seem to matter. I knew an immortal who had his leg chopped off in a sword fight. He decided to roll with it. Hasn't slept in 2,500 years. Became quite famous in China for practicing one-legged Tai Chi on some mountaintop. China, huh? If there's one thing you can say about immortals, it's that they get around. I've waited tables in over 60,000 cities. Whoa. Listen, kid, I know you were looking for a buddy back in the cafe. Um, was it that obvious? I know an immortal when I see one. Also, the hot chocolates gave away that you're an immortal who was just consuming without thinking about it. We don't get full. And the way you looked at the guests, it was obvious you were craving interhuman relationship. A mortal friend... I'll give you an advice. Don't get too caught up with them. Never build up any dependencies. Injuries of the flesh are easily dealt with, but emotional wounds can really stick around for a long time, believe me.
I've been there. Had a guy figure out I'm immortal once. We had a pretty easygoing relationship until he became convinced that I was some sort of divine presence. I liked him. Loved him, even. Maybe. But then he started to worship me, like literally. At first it was flattering being called a goddess all the time, but it turned out to be a huge bummer in the end. It's just not for me. Those poor dying brutes. Stick to small talk when it comes to mortals. That's my rule of thumb anyway. Uh, I was just looking for a friend. Better get used to being alone. But, but, but what about us? We're both immortal. We could literally become friends forever. I'm sure there's a lot you could teach me too. Sure, there is. But nothing you won't learn by yourself eventually. So, um, you don't want to be my friend? Immortals should go their own ways. Sometimes some of us get together and form communities. You can try that, but I don't recommend it. I used to live with these freaks for a while, up on Mount Olympus in Greece. It wasn't for me. We tend to get quite eccentric and pretentious when we are amongst other immortals for too long, and these guys had been there for ages. It was incest and mayhem and thinking we're gods all day and night. James let his head sink as they left the park. Now don't give me that look. Margaret shook her head and sighed. Here's what I can do for you. I'll give up my job at the cafe and teach you a fun little trick. James's face brightened up. You would do that for me? Margaret didn't answer. She led the way and they walked in silence for about five weeks. Here and there they took a ferry, but mostly they traveled on foot. In the fourth week they crossed the French border, and in the fifth they reached Paris, and walked right up to the Eiffel Tower. Been up there before? Margaret asked. Not yet. This is where I'll teach you the trick. I call it creating memories. Mortals do it too, but they never reap the benefits in the same way that we do. She bought two tourist visitors tickets, and together they climbed up to the top tier of the tower. 980 feet above the ground, Margaret waited for the right moment. When no one was looking, she bent the iron bars and broke through the security railing. James looked staggered. I told you we get stronger. Come. James shivered, but for some reason he trusted Margaret, and together they climbed onto the edge of the railing and stared down. The people on the streets looked like tiny pebbles. Hey! A man's voice cried out behind them. A crowd of people formed, and a young kid took out his phone and filmed them. The man, who had seen them first, was slowly moving closer, trying to reason with them. Listen, there's no need for you to do this. Everything will be all right. Everything is perfect, Margaret said and turned to James. Have you ever kissed a girl? James shook his head. Even better, Margaret said and pulled him close. She kissed his lips and leaned into him. They fell for a moment that seemed entirely separated from time. James felt their tongues touch, but before he could make up his mind about what he felt, they smashed through the roof of the restaurant on the first floor. And then everything went dark. James blinked. He was in pain, but he didn't mind. He was dead tired and looked forward to taking a good long nap. But where was he? It was still pitch black and there was metal all around him. Lying down on his back, he started to kick at the metal by his feet until something moved. The stretcher rolled out of the shelf and a dim light from the corridor showed him where he was. 
His body looked like something straight out of a horror movie. Bones were sticking out of his ribcage, another was hanging out of his hip at an impossible angle. The stretcher next to him was empty, and a trickle of blood indicated that Margaret had woken up before him and already left the morgue. James tried to get up, but his legs didn't support his weight, and he fell to the floor. He crawled through the hole, looking like he was auditioning for the dawn of the dead. Finally, he reached an emergency exit. It took him about four hours to hobble all the way to the edge of town where he found an abandoned shack. The sun rose and woke him up about six weeks later. His leg had healed up quite well, but his chest was still a little sore and his head was throbbing. Slowly, James made his way back into town. A few days later, he decided to visit the Eiffel Tower and found it closed off to the public. He asked a nearby tourist information office and got pointed to what looked like a shrine right where the visitor's entrance had been. There were flowers everywhere and a cubicle memorial stone. A newspaper article headline had been cut out and attached to one of the bouquets. Kiss of death tragedy. Mystery lovers commit suicide. Bodies stolen from city morgue. James smiled. Margaret was right. This was a nice trick for an immortal. It was hard for them to remember things, but she had created a memory for him that he would remember because the world would help him remember it. At least for a little while. Maybe this was her way of saying she likes me, James thought. He looked at the memorial stone. Their names weren't mentioned, but instead there was a small poem inscribed into the marble. Two relics from a deathless race, traveling to seek a timeless place. Departed here, yearning to be remembered. Two flames extinguished, became ever-glowing embers. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Welcome back, listeners. It seems the story gnome is quite upset. Oh. Tim says that the marble machine will give the story gnome a chance to compete. All he has to do is come up with a story of his own in half a second and, uh... Well, go on, story gnome. Show us what you've got. What? Uh, um, once, once upon, once upon a time, <clears throat> uh, once upon a time there was, there was, uh, uh, there was a, there was a frog in a closet. In a closet, yes. And? Um, uh, um, uh. How about the frog was in a closet and no one, absolutely no one knew that it was there and that's why his story ends here. Because no one ever knew there was a frog in the closet in the first place. Ha! Yes, yes, I take that. That's my story. Uh, no, that was my story and it wasn't even a real story. And even if it were, you can't just steal it and say it was yours. Uh, sorry, I... I guess you lost. I never lose. And even if I did, no one will ever know it because I don't care about this stupid contest. Tim says that's not how it works. Listeners, the marble machine just spat a half-chewed cucumber at the gnome and now it's starting to glow again. And it sounds... Yes, listeners, it sounds normal again. <laughs> and there's the crack in the attic closing, and the stardust cloud, it, it reappeared, and it's floating over the story gnome, who seems to be dissolving in it. 
And now? Uh, he's gone, without saying a word of goodbye. Well, he was a strange little fellow, wasn't he? But how did the marble machine break the curse of the gnome's magic cucumber? Ah, apparently there are universal rules of storytelling, and especially of storytelling contests. And any being, even the most powerful beings in the fairy realm, have to obey the outcome of a fair and square storytelling contest. I'm glad that's settled, and uh, thanks for listening. Well, if you're interested in our little escapade down in the sewers, and haven't already, well, check out our Patreon page and become a patron. And guess what? By doing so, you can help uh, keep this great storytelling podcast alive. Thank you, Marble Machine. All loving, all ruling Marble Machine. It is so good to have you back.